Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of ASHP's podcast on medication safety, where we discuss current trends in medication safety, regulatory issues, and best practices that improve patient care. My name is Rena Sackett, and today we will be chatting with Lisa Maurice, Executive Director of Consumers Advancing Patient Safety, and our very own Marianne Clethermis, ASHP Director of Medication Safety and Quality. Welcome to you both. It is such a pleasure to have you here for this Patient Safety Awareness Week podcast. And we have a really neat topic today discussing the National Quality Forum's action team on person-centered medication safety. So you both served as team chairs, and you know this work exceptionally well, so very excited to learn more about this. So let's start with Lisa. Lisa, could you give us a brief background on this National Quality Forum Action Team on Person-Centered Medication Safety and what the goal was in forming this group? Sure. Thanks, Rena. The National Quality Forum's Action Team on Person-Centered Medication Safety came about with a recognition that patients and families are able to be involved in their own medicine and their own medication safety. And empowering them to do so is so important, a bottom-up approach, if you will. So really, there were three main goals, I think, of this action team. And one was to share best practices on medication safety with a person-centered approach. The second was really to empower patients and caregivers to advocate for their own safety and to understand how they could do that. And the third was to bring patients, caregivers, health systems, pharmacists, physicians, health plans, federal agencies, researchers, and more together to all discuss this very important topic. Great. Thanks, Lisa. Person-centered medication safety is the focus here, which is seen in the name of this action team. And I think you you touched on this, Lisa, briefly, but Marianne, could you go a little bit more into what a person-centered medication safety approach is and how that differs from other patient care approaches? Yeah, absolutely, Rena. Um, and, and thank you um, for doing this podcast because after the time invested of our terrific group that we had, I'm glad to see it being an avenue to get disseminated. So I really wanted to say that first. Yeah, patient-centered is an interesting term that's been around for a while. And um, I'm going to tell you, I always thought I was patient-centered until I had a PCORI, which is a patient-centered research group, and I learned about being patient-centered. And so as Lisa said, it's kind of starting from the bottom up. And, you know, what we've done so far as far as medication safety is we've put a lot of energy in, in practitioners doing it, but we haven't improved very much. So we need a new tact. And, and really, when you think about it, especially in the ambulatory sector of, of healthcare, is who has the most experience with the, with the medications that they're taking? It's the patients, you know, and, and as 
providers, we only see them once every 30, 60, 90 days. And not really visualizing, seeing, understanding everything that's going on. The person who's the best at this right now is the patient, you know, their family and their caregivers. And so it's a challenge. I think this, um, our issue brief is really a challenge to healthcare providers is to empower. How do we work to empower patients to be integral in, in their decisions so that they know themselves best to, to make sure we're choosing the best drug therapy that won't create problems for them, that they understand it, you know, have enough health literacy to, to understand that this isn't quite right. Maybe I should I should call somebody because I think I'm having an adverse event. And so, you know, to help them understand, to detect and, 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 and feel comfortable and empowered to call about it and not say, well, I don't want to bother. I don't want to bother the doctor. I don't want to bother the pharmacist. I don't want to bother the nurse when it could be very, you know, serious. So, so our challenge is not to be the ones that is overlooking for this, but to empower our patients to be our eyes and ears because they are our eyes and ears. And it's a, it's a completely different mindset. And I think that really is, is where we went with this and what we mean by patient-centered. Great. Thank you so much, Marianne. It's, it's helpful to hear a little bit more of that, that background information and learning a little bit more about that term. So my next question is, what did the action team find as priority challenges or barriers to improving person-centered medication safety? And I'll toss this one to Lisa. Thanks, Rena. Boy, you know, I think one of the top challenges is the complexity of taking medicines, especially when you get into more than a few medications. We have come home from the hospital and we being, I have a child with chronic complex conditions who's had 46 surgeries. And for example, after one of those surgeries, we came home with 10 different medicines and those were to be delivered some every two hours, some every three hours, some every four hours. And some were be uh, had to be crushed in order to be diluted to go down an NJ tube. Others were available in liquid form. And just managing all those medicines, I needed to put everything into an Excel spreadsheet. How many patients are going to do that? And I really would have appreciated more support in being able to process that complicated medicine regime as a caregiver who, even though I had the skill set, I was kind of at my wit's end in that particular situation. So there's a lack of care coordination and communication about how to help and support patients with these complex situations. Also, what came up in every single meeting we had was a lack of time and resources on the part of our professionals who could be providing the support, but they just don't have the time in their schedule currently or haven't prioritized the time to support patients in managing their own medicines. And that was really attributed to misaligned financial incentives that we really needed to look at in order to achieve patient-centered medication safety. We really needed to look at 
the financial incentives in the marketplace for pharmacists and other providers to counsel with patients on how to use their medicines. Because we know such a high percentage don't use their medicines appropriately. We need to prioritize how we can compensate appropriate counseling to achieve better adherence to medications as prescribed. Wow, thank you so much, Lisa. It's, it's important to discuss those you know, challenges, barriers, and overcoming that in order to find the solution, right? And that kind of leads into my next question. So what action items are recommended from this work that all stakeholders need to do for improvement and support of person-centered medication safety? So um, we came up with four very, I think, solid, important action items. And I'll go through each of them and kind of talk about why these became, they uh, floated to the top in, in, in our meetings. Um, first is to build an accurate, beneficial, and comprehensive medication list. That is patient-centered. I'm going to just add that to that. You know, we talk about medication lists, we talk about medication reconciliation and the difficult, and we know the difficulties in getting it accurate, but you know, we really don't talk very much about a tool that exists that could be our conduit to help patients learn, understand, and you know, work on, uh, uh, be that engaged patient and, and that partner. And there's very little work that's ever been done on what helps a patient with their medication list. There's very little work. We haven't really talked about it. We make patient li- we like medication lists that help the provider, not that really help the patient at all. And so how, how many studies out there ever asked a patient, what do you want on your medication list? I can tell you two in over the past 30 years. There's been two. I didn't go past 30 years. So there's only been two. And so we don't really... Uh, we haven't paid attention to that. And, and it's really quite obvious because when you ask a patient to give their medication list, they're usually writing it themselves, even though we have all these electronic medical records that spit out this end of visit summary with the medication list, but they're never accurate for the patient, that the patient has to do it themselves. And the other thing that always amazes me about this one is, you know, most pharmacies I know, they check with the picture, yet we cannot give the patient a picture of the of the med that they're on so that they can understand that. So so we really have not at all been patient-centered, I think, in in this area. And and we really need to put resources to that. So the the second item that we came up with is to provide clear, readable, and understandable medication instructions. Okay, so we spent a lot of time talking about this. First of all, if you're admitted to a hospital, they have their list of med information that they give. Then you go and you get it from the pharmacy and they have their medication information that's stapled to the bag. And, you know, maybe you went to a rehab hospital and they have theirs. And then you go online and there is this. So there's no coordination whatsoever on information. And I've actually had a patient come to me after being admitted to the hospital, going to rehab, going to the pharmacy with a grocery bag filled of the papers that she got about information. And when you look at it, uh, there's a couple problems. One is most of the information that is provided with the prescription is at the 11th grade level. Okay, remember, we're supposed to bring everything at the sixth, but if you actually test it, it's at the 11th grade reading level, level because of the legal requirements in there. So we have done a very, very poor job 
of providing clear, readable, and understanding medication instructions. And I don't know how many of you have tried to use some of these materials that are out. I know I have given it to patients. One of the, and this was an underserved community, but I don't think it's any different. I usually found it in the trash can on the on the way out of the clinic because you know it's overwhelming. We give too much information. We're not giving what patients need uh, because. Uh, we're not listening to them of what they do need. And uh, and we overwhelm them with too much information instead of pri- helping them prioritize what's important to them to know and to uh, just like Lisa was talking about. It's it's overwhelming. I've, I've also had patients put things on a spreadsheet and sometimes their spreadsheets are a hundred times better than anything we've come up with in the healthcare. So I would suggest that we bring patients in to figure out how best to do that. So that's um, the number two item that we came up with. Third is to educate and empower patients and caregivers to be partners, you know, and, and, and that is actually somewhat of a challenge because there's a fear there's the, because of our culture is very paternalistic. It's, you know, your patients are like children and providers are like parents. And, you know, you're kind of, there's this hierarchy instead of this partnership. And especially for um, some of our more elderly patients who are used to that, or even our more elderly providers who are also used to that. And so that they're uncomfortable when somebody starts saying, well, I don't want to do this. You know, you know, you're challenging me and, and, and vice versa. Like, I don't want to bother them. You know, I don't want them to think I'm a bad patient. So we have to get over some of these cultural things that, that occur. And, and we have to educate, empower patients to, to know how to talk, to bring, to bring their voice, to bring their concerns, to bring how they want this therapy plan to go. And then four is to prioritize, invest in in person-centered medication safety. So as Lisa said, we have not put resources. Many providers would love to do this. This is what makes it fun to be a provider, but time and and reimbursement are just not not there. Wow, that was great, Marianne. So many good things you said there. And I... I really like what you said about, you know, not listening to the patient. That tends to be a huge issue we see. And that's almost an afterthought, which is sad to ask the patient, what do they want to see on their list? You know, what are you taking? What are you not taking? Why is that? Um, so I think that's that's a that's a huge key point, listening to the patient and really involving them in their yeah. care. And and what would they like to see? What information would help them make it easier on that list, you know, right. on that medication list to manage it? themselves when they're trying to do that most of the time. Right, absolutely. So creating meaningful partnerships with patients, families, and caregivers is an important piece, right, to achieve these medication safety goals, which we alluded to earlier. So how do you create these meaningful partnerships? What are some ways that you both have found to be successful in this? So I'll throw this out to both of you, but let's start with Lisa, and then we'll go to Marianne. You know, Rena, there's really two things we are looking at here, and they're they're separate issues. One is creating meaningful partnerships at the clinical level, and the other is creating meaningful partnerships at the governance policy and procedure level. So at the clinical level, it's important for people to get to know their patients, and that is the normal person way of saying the fancy word assess. And that includes interesting bits of information like their level of, of health literacy and also numeracy. 
you know, most medicines are prescribed in metric units. Who understands metric units in the United States? Really, uh, or they may get their medicine, which is in a metric unit with so many MMs per whatever in teaspoons and tablespoons. So you have mixed units. And this is very confusing for the patients. We once received a medication that was for a TSBL and we had to take it back and get clarification on whether they meant a teaspoon or a tablespoon. By the way, a tablespoon would have been way too much. So it's important to assess the knowledge of your your patients and and simplify the information. As Mary Ann has said, it's way too complex for most people to grasp, especially when they are ill, because your literacy when you are well and your understanding when you are ill are two entirely separate things. And then we need to be asking people to understand the potential side effects and uh, to report adverse events. So that's at the clinical level. At the governance level, we need to invite patients and caregivers to discuss policy and procedure. And that was actually modeled by the National Quality Forum Action Team with patients presenting at every single meeting and patients involved in the discussion and providing input so that all of the stakeholders were at the table and insights were offered that the professionals may not have been able to share. So it's really important to have patients alongside in developing these practices. That makes me think, Lisa, about um, how many of our electronic medical records that produce these medication lists actually ever have a patient involved in it. I I would bet it's zero percent. And I even know that um, some of the prescription drug plans send a very fancy medication list. I remember a patient coming to me says, what am I supposed to do with it? It's not correct. You know, and and they spend all this money and, you know, it's not effective or useful. And, uh, and, and you think the root cause, well, they didn't include the person who's going to use it in the decision-making. So great points. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts on that. Another thing I'm curious about So when the action team discussed this, did they talk about any challenges that might arise in different practice settings? So for example, you know, what does this look like for patients and care providers who may be in the small and rural setting versus in larger urban areas? I think it, um, you know, I think we did talk about underserved and, um, and when you, you talk about underserved, that, that is a broad category that both is rural and it's both, you know, urban. There are people who do not have access who, you know, Lisa mentioned the health literacy and the health numeracy. And so it's not a one size fit all for the uh, action items that we talked about when we when we talk about a medication list or when we talk about I- information or how to empower patients i think we need so much more work here to understand how to take the general framework of these ideas and pivot it to whatever group you're working with 
for instance, you know, I know in my background, I, I worked with the uh, Chicago uh, Chinese American population in, in Chicago's Chinatown. And, you know, it's a different culture. It's a different view of healthcare and how they access things. You know, they and, and what they want to learn and what they don't want to learn. And uh, we have to understand that. And I think that that's just one example. I don't think that it exists. I mean, I think that exists in all kinds of populations. And, you know, if you think about the the rural, you know, they do not have the luxury of a ER or an urgent care center down the street, you know, so they need to be empowered more so, I think, in understanding what potential things may happen. So their education may be, you know, we... A, a, a knee-jerk reaction, I think, from a lot of providers is something starts going wrong, well, go to the ER. You know, well, okay, you know, it's an hour drive away. You know, so that can't be a standard statement in our education pieces. So, you know, we have to use the power of technology to create these things that allow allow for a standard framework, but individualization that you need. I think, but that requires resources and investment. But if we do, we may reduce the $500 billion problem of adverse medication events. You know, I I really appreciate what Marianne said around access, because that definitely is a variable between the rural and the urban population. And, And an urban person, even though that ER is just down the street, may have less access in some ways simply because of resources and their Uh, social determinants of health-related issues. That being said, person-centeredness is often greater in the rural environment because people have less power distance. That's a communication term of, of my perception of your power over me based on your, uh, different level of of social status or economic status. And the people in the rural communities, they see each other at school and they see each other in the grocery store and they see each other at the lake and they have less power distance. There's more person-centeredness because people know each other. But most of the providers and those who are patients and caregivers in the urban setting will never interact socially. They don't know each other's background. And it's much easier to objectify an individual if you don't know much about them. So that creates a new barrier to patient-centeredness where we don't know that you like to fish on the weekends and it's a priority to you to be able to walk your dog every day. Those are the kinds of things that help in understanding how best to meet the patient's needs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. It's it's important to remember, right? I mean, it's it's a great to, great to have that perspective looking at both rural and urban and taking those different challenges and barriers into consideration. So Marianne talked a little bit about this earlier, you know, when talking about the recommendations, educating and empowering patients and caregivers to be partners in their care. But I want to know more about what kinds of policies procedures, protocols would be helpful for hospitals and health systems to put this into place, you know, to empower patients, caregivers to be partners in their care. So, Rena, I'd like to talk about this a little bit in in two ways, because providers need to be 
aware of this and integral in creating these policies and procedures? And, and, and why do I want to bring providers in? Because they, they can't be hand-tied by very strict policies and procedures if, if they need to vary what they're going to do and not, you know, in order to meet the patient's needs. And so, you know, I guess that one, one story that's kind of stuck on my mind as I was preparing for this is I had this patient who was, I had a, a pulmonary embolism and um, his social life was a disaster. He was his, he owned a gas station or automobile repair and it was going under, his wife was divorcing him and he was drinking a ton and now he had a pulmonary embolism. You know, so as a healthcare provider, you know, could I be admonished by my peers and colleagues if I said, you have to stop drinking when you're on this drug because it's going to just, you know, there was no way this guy was going to stop drinking, you know. And so, and he said that to me. So what we negotiated is I explained to him that, you know, if you vary what you drink, it's going to really create problems for you that you may have another um, clot or you may bleed. And so we, we negotiated to how much he could drink per day. And then he agreed that he's going to drink five beers per day. It's going to be consistent until, you know, and, and, you know, if I told anybody that I allowed this patient to drink five beers a day, but he was drinking much more on, you know, on certain days that, you know, it, so that's what I mean. You, you've got to have some flexibility and, and understand that, you have to listen to your patient and do what's going to be best for them. But when I think about policies and procedures, I think, Lisa, you talked about it. It's, it's the communication. I mean, we, sometimes when I was in the hospital and I was a practitioner for the hospital, and it was eye-opening when I left the hospital and went to practice in, in home care and ambulatory. Because in the hospital, I thought we were doing everything right until I went to home care and ambulatory and realized, well, they don't know beans about this patient and everything that they recommended is not going to work now because they didn't take into account anything about this patient's life. And, and that was an aha moment. And I think the other thing is if, if vice versa, if you try to communicate our communication lines, which is that whole transition of care is not great between a hospital and, a, and, and the pharmacy, the hospital, you know, we're, we're working on certain lines like hospital to nursing home or hospital to the primary care. But oftentimes these very complex patients have five other providers and, you know, and two pharmacies and, you know, and so we have to figure out um, that interruptibility and that, that, that sharing. I think that, that, and hospitals have to understand that everything they do could be contradicted by something outside. Um, and so unless they're communicating, they're not going to realize that, you know, just like the lady who came with the bag of information, well, there was contradictory information that was provided from the various places that she went. And so it became very confusing. Even this morning, my, um, my father-in-law is, has some health issues and, you know, went to one doctor who says, take aspirin and went to another doctor. Well, I don't really care if you take aspirin. So what, so when, you know, unless that was really clear of the reasons why, what would that person do when they went home? So I think policies and procedures and protocols need to think beyond the hospital walls, uh, you know, I guess is probably that. And, and to include patients and to include providers in, in making sure it's a policy of procedures that, that work well for the patient. 
You know, I really appreciate what you said, Marianne, because policies and procedures do need to work better for the patient. And I would start with the med rec list, because right now it's just a list. And going down a list, you take this and this and this and this and this. And and then we get that as patients every time we go to the doctor and when we are in the hospital. But it needs to be more than a list. So here's a policy that's easy to implement, I would think, and would be really helpful toward person-centered medication safety. And that would be taking your medical reconciliation, your medication reconciliation, and adding to it, how are you getting this medicine? In other words, is it, can you pay for it? Where do you go to get this medicine? How do you manage this medicine at home? How do you handle the different times of day? Do you have a reminder on your phone? Do you use a pillbox? Those are the kinds of questions that need to be asked. And then these are the potential side effects of this medicine. Have these been discussed with you before? What would you do if you had one of these side effects? Do you have a plan in place for who you would call? And then what would you do if you had an adverse event? Except don't use those words. Just say, if something went wrong, who would you call? How would you handle that? How would it be reported? And in hospitals, I think people need to have a full-on campaign. And your organization is the best place to start this. And that is the pharmacist is your friend. Most patients and families have no idea what a pharmacist is or what they do. They see the pharmacist counting pills at the back of the store and checking labels, but they don't understand the tremendous amount of education that has gone into your understanding of what will work best in what situation what things may be contraindicated by uh, other medicines that are being taken, no clue. So more actual humans need to know what a pharmacist does, what their educational background is, and that they are your best resource for questions about your medicine. Yeah, just wonderful comments. I'd like to add two things. Interestingly, one of our patient representatives on this task force did not realize pharmacists were in hospitals. This is 2021, did not realize pharmacists. And that's an aha moment for hospitals and pharmacists that work in hospitals. The second thing, you know, I love, you know, I love what Lisa said about medication reconciliation because what it's, the way we operationalized it now as a health system, it's not working. And the data shows it's not working. And it's not until you really ask those kind of questions um, do you see the, the better outcomes, the, you know, less patients coming back into the hospital. But I'd like to add to that, You know, one of the things that I think patients can really help is, you know, how do you know this medicine's working? You know, what what is it that I'm going to be able to say I think it's working or I think it's not working? You know, what is it? And and the other thing that I've always found when I talk about patients about side effects, you know, what we do is we don't really kind of tell them the side effects because we're afraid that you know they they may think they have it. Who cares? I, you know, I, that, that's an old time. We shouldn't do that. But the other thing is, you know, they're on a medicine for blood pressure, and then we ask them if they're having a cough. Okay. You know what I'm talking about. All, all of you in pharmacy know that I'm talking about ACE inhibitor or ARB. But what patient knows that? And they look at you with like, why are you asking me if I have a cough? You know, so we don't do also a very good job of explaining, you know, 
some of the side effects that we start asking about may think you're nuts. I would think I was nuts if somebody asked me, isn't this for my blood pressure? Why are you asking me about a cough? You know, so we we have to think beyond our little four walls and, and put ourselves in, in the patient's view. And if I do nothing, I would think, do I trust this person? <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they're asking me some very strange. So I often talk about when I ask about side effects, you know, just to remind them, uh, I tell them about the why I'm going to ask you about this, because this drug can do this because of this. And, you know, so that they don't think I'm coming from the moon to ask them such a goofy question, you know. Um, so, I, so I love that. I and, and if we invest in that transition of care and that med rec process, I think and we've invested a lot of money in it already, but but we'd like to try to do things as simple as possible. But as Lisa said, this is complex and we cannot do it as simple as possible. We have to address the complexity of it. Right. Absolutely. So good to be talking about this and sharing what you know we can be doing right now in our hospitals, health systems. And that kind of segues nicely into my my next question. And you already talked about you know the important roles of pharmacists and what they what they do and what they what they you know, what role they can play. So what are some tangible and or practical ways that our pharmacists can implement better person-centered medication safety as a first step in their respective practice sites? You know, there was a great example given by one of the pharmacists who was on our action team of sitting down with a patient that he had who was um, deaf and asking them in more extended conversation about their understanding of their medicines and how they were going to take them and how they were going to use them and how they got them and all those things that I talked about earlier. And the the patient and her husband, who was also deaf, were so appreciative of this time and it really cleared up misunderstandings on the patient's part around their their medicines. The thing is, who has that kind of time? And how many other patients in his practice as uh, the clinical pharmacy manager for a major health system, can he help in that that way. There just needs to be more resources dedicated to being able to take time, not every visit, perhaps, maybe on an annual basis to explain the medicines, get the feedback around how they're being used, talk about the side effects, all of those things. It's so important. Mary Ann? Yeah, I um, I think listening first, making sure uh, and asking first, what is your agenda today? What do you want to know about this medicine? What is most important to you, I think is one thing. Another tact I think is do not overwhelm. Work with that patient to decide what's the most important thing for them to get through the next month or until you see them, you know. To list every side effect like we do is overwhelming. But with 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 that, you know, with what's going on with that patient, what's the most important thing for them to tell that a drug is working or not working and, or is causing problems? So I think, you know, really critically analyzing your 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 practice style, and you know, like Lisa said, t- time is a real barrier to providers to 
to implement this and to do this. When So we have to really, when you talk going back to policies, think about workflow. And there are there are some very interesting articles about how people are trying to adjust their workflow. You know, we're assuming that everyone in a 20, 30 minute visit can get all this stuff done. But if you look at some of the new models of care where you have coaches or, you know, prepare, there's some preparation, you can adjust your, your visit time to meet what that need is. And if you have huddles in the morning where this is being raised, then the provider can say, you know, I'm going to need, an hour with that person from what you're telling me, do you know? And so we have to kind of embrace, I think these new models, but to embrace these new models, we need to embrace payment for these new models. And pharmacists have to tell their stories just like um, our, our member did from that major health system told the story that nobody had ever done this. And this patient's been on, you know, two years. And I had a similar case where nobody figured out the patient didn't read you know, because nobody took the time to try to understand why things were going wrong. And and time is money. I understand that. But we have to figure out and empower, I think, providers and patients to make sure they get adequate. Because what we're not thinking about is the down end, you know, uh, result of that, which ends up, you know, often costing more, more money because of these strict policies <laughs> that sometimes make no sense, you know, because they're not helping that patient. And it's complex. Uh, you know, we tried to do things simple and figure everyone's going to fit into that simple way. And it's, it's not so, but we have technology now we have artificial intelligence. We have things I think that can, can make this happen now. Right. Definitely. So you both have shared so many great points, but I guess for my last question, is there anything today that we didn't cover that you want to make sure our audience hears on this topic? Yeah, I I have something that's really important that we brought up and touched on briefly, but really needs more emphasis in the pharmacist community, and that is pharmacogenomics. I was one of the people who flunked lisinopril because I got the cough, but I also have a CYP2D6 poor processing challenge. And there's a very long list of medicines that I should never even ever be prescribed because I just won't clear them. And in fact, they could kill me like opioids. So I am a huge proponent for more pharmacists undertaking this uh, opportunity to educate their not just patient population, but also providers around the importance of understanding the genetics that are involved in medication and medication processing. If you're patient-centered, you have to know that patients aren't going to understand genetics. They're not going to understand things like alleles. What are those? So we need to really push this through the professional community so that we have a more real patient-centered approach where we're focusing on that individual's abilities uh, physiologically to process medication and then matching them with what will best meet their needs to achieve the best possible outcomes. Just a great point. And wouldn't you all love to have a patient like Lisa who can <laughs> reel off that? Uh, but but I think what it brings up is a really good point that you made, Lisa, and that and that is for pharmacists to 
trust their patients and trust their ability to understand once it explained well. And, you know, and, and, you know, I've had several patients that, um, boy, when I explained it to them, it's amazing what they took with it because they really get it. Uh, you know, I had a guy who was going into heart failure all the time, but he didn't understand the whole balance between what he ate and the fluid and, you know, whatever. And um, boy, it, one hour of talking to him, you know, he was not hospital. He was hospitalized all the time. He'd fly to Florida and go out to eat with friends or whatever and, you know, be hospitalized on the way back because he ate too much salt. Um, and it was a really, you know, and I just, it's just all he had to do is teach him how to monitor that for himself. And he, you know, he came back and he had this whole spreadsheet, like you talked about. And then um, he came back and he, you know, uh, went golfing, sweated a lot, decreased my Lasix. You know, <laughs> he would, you know, took his blood pressure, it was low, you know, and then he would say, ate two Big Macs, took an extra dose of Lasix, you know. Um, it was, you know, all, it's just amazing the power that and the intelligence of every person. You know, we may talk about health literacy, but that does not mean that anybody is illiterate. In fact, they're really, even people who, my patient who could not read could get a lot of information if we take the time to, to, to teach them and understand, you know, and, and just work and to figure out the best way to teach them. And so those are areas that I think we don't spend a lot of time in pharmacy school how to teach. I think most of us just learn on the by the seat of our pants how to teach adults. And so those are just air, gaps, I think, that that creates the situation we are in today. Wonderful points from both of you. Such a great discussion, my goodness. Um, I've really enjoyed learning about this, so thank you. With that, I'll thank, again, both Lisa and Marianne, thank you for joining us um, to discuss the National Quality Form Action Team on person-centered medication safety. Yeah, thank you. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's medication safety resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Patient Safety Resource Center, patient education resources through safemedication.com, and exchange ideas and ask questions with your peers on the ASHP Medication Safety Connect community. Thanks again for tuning in for this episode of ASHP's podcast on medication safety, and be sure to subscribe to the official ASHP podcast for more med safety and other practice topics important to the pharmacy workforce. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.